and welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today we're talking with David Vendrunen, Robert B. Strimple, Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics. He's author of a number of titles, a growing number of titles, including Bioethics in the Christian Life, he's co-editor of The Law is Not a Faith, and his latest book is Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, a study in the development of Reformed Social Thought. These titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California at wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dave, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks. Good to be here. Well, this is a substantial book published by Erdman's and, as I say, available uh, at the bookstore. As we're talking now, it uh, is on its way to the bookstore, and it's supposed to be here in time for the conference, which is January 15 and 16, 2010, which is good because th- these are the kinds of topics that we will be discussing uh, at the conference this year. That's right. Wh- why this book? Why did you write it? Well, it's really sort of a long story. I'll try not to make it too long. Uh, I really wrote this book because it was the book that I wanted to read about 12 or 15 years ago. Um, After I finished my uh, seminary studies here, uh, before doing my PhD, I I went to law school, and um, I I had uh, a lot of interest in the kind of topics that I'm I'm writing about now, uh, theology and law, theology and civil government, uh, Christianity and culture kinds of, of, of issues. And, you know, w- when I was a student here uh, at Westminster, California, uh, we never talked in the classroom or outside the classroom about issues of natural law or, or the two kingdoms, which would probably be surprising to, uh, uh, to, to some people listening now. Um, and uh, what, when I went to uh, law school and I was obviously thinking about some of these these. Uh, uh, Issues and you know there I am at a secular law school and um, I only know a handful of other professing Christians there and but yet here I am talking about issues of the legal order and justice with a bunch of non Christians every day and that obviously raises a lot of questions about what am I doing how do I talk about these things with people uh, how does the Christian understand himself in that kind of legal or political or other kind of cultural context. And uh, as as I was um, I was still reading theology as I was doing my my legal studies and as, as I would read Calvin I'd read other uh, early, early Reformed thinkers and I would I would run across ideas of of natural law I would find references uh, to these things and it, it seemed very um, relevant to the kinds of issues that I was thinking about and um, yet it was sort of curious that. Contemporary Reformed people didn't seem to be talking about this, and yet I was finding it in these great Reformed giants of 16th, 17th century. Such as? Well, you could find it in almost everybody. <laughs> uh, uh, Calvin, for example, if, if you pick up the big three volumes of uh, Francis Turretin's Institutes, you can find uh, you know all, all sorts of references to natural law. If you pick up some of the great British uh, reform thinkers like John Owen, you'll find you know, all, all sorts of references to, to, to natural law. So, so that, 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 would, that sort of piqued my interest. And what I really wanted to do was I wanted to read some sort of book that talked about natural law in the Reformed theological tradition. And as far as I could tell, that book just wasn't there. Uh, I, I wanted to know, you know, what exactly were these people talking about and why aren't people talking about it now? 
So um, that was sort of in the back of my my head, and I also, as I was reading these uh, these reformed figures, was coming across this idea of of the of the two kingdoms as well, and that was sort of percolating in my head. And when I uh, began my uh, PhD studies, and um, I, I actually wrote my dissertation on Thomas Aquinas, and I was able to uh, to get to know his uh, theology of of natural law, and it was clear that. You know, there, there. You know, he was writing not as a reformed thinker. There were things that we couldn't do exactly the same as Thomas, as as a reformed people. But still, I really, really wanted to. I wanted to understand better. Uh, you know, what happened with our uh, reformed tradition on this. So, after I finished my PhD and came out here to Westminster and sort of got my feet wet and got got uh, settled, I was thinking about the direction of my of my research and I thought you know I I, I think I'm going to try to write that book that I, I really wanted to read and so I started working on it um, in in some sort of focused way I believe is it was in 2003 and there were obviously a lot of other things I was doing along the way um, but as I did my my research and tried to trace the reformed tradition on natural law really from the Reformation to the present, I also became convinced more and more that thinking about it uh, alongside of the Two Kingdoms doctrine was very important because they were very interlinked uh, ideas to the Reformed uh, tradition. So uh, that's really the genesis of the book, and um, uh, really I finished drafting it in 2007. It's actually been off my desk for 28 months or so. So it's nice to see it finally coming out, and I think I remember a few things that I wrote. <laughs> well, it, it is odd to do interviews about things that you wrote a long time ago. Sometimes you have to go back and look at the book and see. Well, well it'll be fun to read it, because I'll be reminded of all these things I once knew. Exactly. Now, when I say natural law, some people hear something rather different than what you mean. Yes. What are the different ways, or some different ways, of talking about natural law? Sure. Well, perhaps it'd be best for me to begin by saying what, what I think, in general, the ref, uh, Reformed theologians have meant by it when they talked about it and, and talked about it positively, and, and I would share this view of natural law, that it's basically one aspect of God's natural revelation. Uh, we've always believed and confessed as Reformed Christians that God reveals Himself in nature to all people— not in a saving way, but he reveals himself and he reveals his law uh, in in creation. And then secondly, God reveals himself uh, through special revelation, through the word of the apostles and prophets, as has been uh, preserved for us uh, in Scripture. Um, and that obviously is a fuller and more clear revelation of God. So natural law is one aspect of God's natural revelation. Uh, it's It's the revelation of God's moral law, um, uh, through the created things, uh, through the conscience that God has has given to each each uh, human being, so that all people, whether they've ever read the Bible or not, or ever heard a sermon preached or not, uh, they know the basics uh, of uh, God's law, and um, to some extent, uh, everybody lives according to it. They can't really get by in this world if they don't, to some degree. Uh, abide within the constraints of of that natural law, though as sinners they are obviously uh, prone constantly to be perverting it and twisting it for their own selfish ends. Now, um, I think when a, a lot of people, a lot of Reformed people today, hear the term natural law, 
what that connotes is maybe at best a kind of compromised Roman Catholic view, or at worst some sort of Enlightenment, godless kind of view. Well, uh, yeah, those are the two things that I wanted to uh, to get at. Why do people think that, and how is your di- the view that you're arguing in this book— um, Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, a study in the development of Reformed social thought. How is it different from those two alternatives? Sure. Well, uh, I think when people think of sort of this this idea of enlightenment and, and natural law, uh, they would think of it as uh, natural law as sort of this alternative to a religious or theistic way of thinking about ethics. This is a way of thinking about ethics without God or without mm-hmm. religion— uh, this is a it's, this is sort of a, a human attempt, an autonomous human attempt to think about moral issues. Now that would have been completely foreign to our reformed ancestors. But if, there were people who did make cases yes, like that. Yes, there were, but they so, weren't they weren't reformed theologians. When, su- and, such as, can you give examples of people who made cases for natural law that uh, were formally? Uh, about natural law, but substantially different from the kinds of approaches that you found in the Reformed tradition. Yeah, I, I mean, the um, one of the people who's, who's often seen as sort of uh, the father of a more enlightenment kind of, of, of natural law would be uh, Hugo Grotius, yeah. um, a, a Dutch-Arminian um, theologian jurist who, um, I mean, he was not an, an atheist, uh, but he made a very famous statement that, you know, even if God didn't exist, the, nat- the natural law would still be mm. what it is. Mm. And in a sense, it was, you know, he didn't believe that God didn't exist, but in a sense, it sort of tripped off this whole this whole uh, idea, this whole project of thinking, okay, well, here we are, you know, 17th, 18th century, we have all these, you know, these long, bad experiences of these re- religious wars. Uh, maybe we can just sort of lay that aside. Uh, people can kind of, kind of do what they want religiously, but at least we can agree on you know, these moral, social, political kind, kinds of issues. And let's talk about natural law then in this, this, this way in which we sort of leave God out of the picture. Or at least not in any clearly defined uh, traditional Christian theistic way. I right. Mean, so would this be the kind of way that you see, for example, some of the founding fathers of the American Republic talking about natural law? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you find Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of, of Independence with these sort of uh, appeals to, to, to nature, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's all very generic. It's not, you know, it's, it's certainly not attached to any kind of Christian orthodoxy. Um, there are just certain kind of moral truths that are assumed to be true, but, but they were really not dependent upon any, any really substantive theological uh, uh, convictions. Now, for Reformed theologians, that, I mean, that, that would have been extremely foreign. Mm. And I think this is something that is really, really important to, to emphasize. When, 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 when Reformed people react viscerally against natural law, that when you read 16th, 17th, 18th century, Reformed the- 19th century Reformed theologians on natural law, they meant natural law is God's law. Mm. There's nothing neutral about it, nothing autonomous about it. It's God's—not just God's law, it's God's revelation. And so, uh, the, the, you know, the, the voice of conscience is God's voice speaking uh, uh, to us. And so, uh, certainly one of the important 
task of my book, I think, is to convince people, as I'm tracing how this doctrine was used through the Reformed tradition, to say, you know, I mean, whether or not there's a better term for natural law, I mean, that those are the kind of questions that are very f- fair to ask, but it, it's very important to note that um, Reformed theologians didn't mean anything like that sort of Enlightenment notion of an autonomous, kind of humanly derived human standard that's sort of independent of our of, of God or of our theological convictions. So in fairness to those who have been concerned about or a renewed interest in natural law, there is potential for some confusion because you had an, a very ancient tradition before the Reformation talking about natural law, and then you had a, a Reformation way, and we'll get to that mm-hmm. in a moment, of talking about natural law. And then in reaction to the Reformation, you did have a, some important transitional figures like uh, Grotius and, and others talking about natural law leading up into the 18th century, sort of deistic way of talking about natural law. So there are a variety of ways of talking about natural law, and you're not defending all of those. You're only defending one of those, but but they're all using the same term. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I mean, w- one thing I would say is I, I'm really not defending any particular view. This is really is a historical study without making okay. a constructive uh, argument. But I would defend the um, the reformed, uh, the basic reformed understanding of natural law. Although I think there are a lot of things we can do to try to strengthen that and 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 and, and make it more clear. And you have right. Uh, there's a volume that you can get from the bookstore, a biblical case for natural law, and that's at the bookstore. That's true, and I'm hoping to do a lot more in the future. But that's a little, yeah, that's uh, a very small attempt. But you're right. I mean, a, a lot of the concerns that people have about natural law are very legitimate. And if I, you know, if, if I or others were talking about natural law in the sense that they probably think of, then they would be very correct to be uh, critical of it. And when we come back, we will talk about another way of talking about natural law, that is the way that preceded the Reformation, and we'll do that right after this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character, Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where we've been fulfilling his vision of training men for ministry and preparing them to be expert in the Bible for 30 years. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Now, David, before the Reformation, there was a way of talking about natural law, and you you mentioned it earlier. Uh, You find it in, for example, Thomas Aquinas, uh, who is maybe one of the most significant theologians of the 13th century, how is what you find in Reformed theology and the Reformed approach to natural law different from what you find in Thomas Aquinas? Sure. Uh, I'm not going to tell you everything, in part because <laughs> I don't remember everything I wrote. I just want people to uh, to buy the book. The so, book, yes. um, But yeah, I mean, I, I make a general argument uh, in the book that uh, what the Reformed and post-Reformation Reformed writers were— um, we're doing uh, stood in in continuity with a, a broad Christian natural law tradition that dates back a long, long ways, but that there were some significant reform distinctives about it that really mark out a uh, a some sort of distinctively reformed uh, theology of natural law. And I, I I personally think that that could be developed further, but it certainly was there. One thing that well I, I would also mention, and you 
know this, of course, uh, is that Thomas Aquinas wasn't the only medieval figure talking about natural law, and, and there were some medieval, pretty significant medieval figures uh, who believed in natural law very strongly, but but had some very different views about how it fit into a broader theological picture uh, than, than Thomas did. But ju- just to think about Thomas for, for uh, a moment, I think if you compare him to Calvin and, and, and other uh, early Reformed figures— uh, you see, for one thing, uh, the, the reform figures have have a, a deeper sense of sin and the uh, the effects of sin in um, perverting sinful human beings' perception and use of the natural law, and and that's certainly a very important practical thing. Another thing that you find is in someone like Thomas Aquinas, you have natural law set in this sort of larger Neoplatonic framework of, Mm. for Thomas, natural law is human reason's participation in God's reason. And so you have, from, you know, from from our Reformed perspective, uh, we would look at that and say, you know, that's that's, that's really not uh, an adequate way to protect the creature distinction, for one thing. And Natural law in in someone like Calvin is is not put in those those Neoplatonic philosophical uh, categories, and I think that's a pretty important thing to remember. Uh, there are also some uh, differences in uh, uh, conscience, where I think um, conscience plays a, a more direct role in Calvin's theology of natural law than it did in in uh, Thomas's. Thomas obviously mm. believed in, in in the conscience, but it was it was um, not as uh, intimate and, and essential to what natural law is itself as it was for Calvin. Just to mention uh, one other thing is uh, Calvin's putting natural law in the framework of the two kingdoms doctrine is something that you don't find medieval figures doing. And I, I it, it seems to me that that's really important for how, um, for how natural law fits into a reform system of doctrine and, and what it means practically uh, for thinking about uh, reform social thought. I'm glad you said that, because that's exactly where I wanted to go next. So one of the big differences between reformed and non-reformed ways about talking uh, of talking about natural law is the two kingdoms. For those who aren't familiar with that way of speaking, or who perhaps assume that only, for example, only Lutherans talk about two kingdoms, what do you mean by two kingdoms? And again, where does that la- from where does that language come? And yeah, well, yeah. The, the um, again in the uh, book, I I, I I try to give some historical background. Um, I, th- I think we can we, we can find the ideas of the two kingdoms back already. You know, in you know the second century, uh, and certainly the uh, thought of. Um, Augustine and his 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 two cities uh, idea, while not identical to uh, the Reformation two kingdoms idea, is you know, I think a very important uh, precursor. And you've got ideas of the two swords and the two powers that are at work in the uh, Middle Ages, and and so you you have you have all sorts of these sort of two dual kind of uh, uh, ideas for trying to 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 uh, understand the relationship of. The church and the state, you know, what's you know, sort of the the, the questions that, that we might put under the broad category of Christianity and culture. Luther obviously had a uh, two kingdoms doctrine that was that was pretty uh, significant, and uh, he also had this idea of uh, 
the two governments, which was uh, related uh, uh, to that. And I argue that um, uh, the, the the two kingdoms doctrine that Calvin had, and that was uh, you know as as it's developed by a number of other Reformed theologians, uh, bears a lot of similarities to the Lutheran doctrine. But again, it's distinct. Mm-hmm. Um, there 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 is a distinctive Reformed two kingdoms doctrine, and I personally believe that the Reformed version is better than the uh, Lutheran version. And what what would some of the distinctions be? Yeah, well, one thing that 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 I think is important is the way that the two kingdoms relate to the law-gospel distinction. Both Reformed and Lutherans believed in, in, this, in the basic distinction between the law, what God commands us to do, and the gospel, what God promises to do for us. Hmm. Uh, for uh, Lutherans, um, the two kingdoms tended to be equated with uh, one with the law, one with the gospel. So for Lutherans, the kingdom of the left hand, sort of God's work in civil society to maintain, you know, the, the political and legal economic structures of, of this world, that's the realm of law. And the, the kingdom of the right hand, that's the kingdom where the gospel uh, uh, is preached. And so there, there tends to be more of this distinction that the, the two kingdoms are marked out by these two, by law and gospel. Uh, it's, it's not that black and white in, in the Reformed uh, tradition as I as I understand it. Certainly the uh, Reformed theologians would have agreed that the what what, what the Lutherans called the kingdom of uh, the left hand or what uh, I ordinarily refer to in in my book as the civil kingdom. That's that's language that Calvin would uh, uh, use. Uh, that that is a kingdom of of uh, of law. Uh, You're not going to get the gospel from the civil kingdom. That's right, and 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 Calvin is is pretty clear in a number of places that uh, we're not to expect it. We don't we don't want that. In fact, that was one of the problems with uh, with some of these uh, Anabaptist groups that they were trying to act as if uh, the gospel was a political thing. So. Um, but you know, when you turn to the spiritual kingdom, uh, when you turn to uh, uh, the church as the manifestation of of the spiritual kingdom here and now, the reform would would say, well, this is a kingdom in which there is both law and gospel. There, there this obviously is the place where the gospel is proclaimed. Uh, but this is also a a kingdom in which there is discipline. Uh, it's a kingdom in which there is church government, and. I think this played out in that you 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 find um, so many reformed people who who promoted the two kingdoms doctrine as defending the the right of the church uh, to have its own discipline, the right of the church to have its own government. Whereas Lutherans t- uh, in many places would hand over those tasks to the civil magistrate. Uh, those are things that concern law. And so that's that's the kind of thing that the civil government can, can, can take control of, and and, and and so there is a very practical difference mm. that I think you can see uh, emerging to distinguish the reformed and uh, Lutheran applications of, of 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 the two kingdoms idea. And when you talk about the function of the law in the church as the spiritual kingdom, you're talking really what, about what we call the third use exactly. of the law, not not the first use exactly in the civil sphere. How would you describe that use of the law theologically? Well, it's it's the uh, second use of of, okay. uh, uh, of the law. It's it's uh, the use of the law that um, upholds and supports civil righteousness. There is this use of of the law which which drives people to repentance and to look to Christ. And then there's the third use, which is the uh, the grateful response of of uh, of God's people 
to the gospel. Uh, this second use of, of the law is not—it's not redemptive, it's not, it's not salvific, but it is, it's this constraint that, that God uses uh, in order to keep order in, in society, to, uh, uh, to maintain a certain sense of, of uh, justice in this world, and that's actually where natural law becomes very important. And so this sounds to me like something like what is sometimes called, or has been called in the 20th century, common grace— at least it's, it seems like it must be related in some ways. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, uh, common grace wasn't the, sort of the, the, this important independent theological category back in the 16th, 17th century the way it has been in the last century uh, uh, or so. But the the idea of common grace is, is, is obviously there, and um, the idea that God, by His providence, is, is, is upholding this world, He's upholding it both for believers and unbelievers, and sending many common blessings upon them, among which are the state, courts, judicial system, civil law. That's a really important uh, uh, idea, and that's, that's intimately—I mean, that's, that is a really, really important part of what the Two Kingdoms Doctrine uh, is all about. And actually, I, I, I argue in my book that when we get to Abraham Kuyper in the late 19th, early 20th century, that his, his doctrine of common grace actually resembles uh, important aspects of the, Reformed, the historic Reformed Two Kingdoms Doctrine in, in all sorts of critical ways. And even though Kuyper wasn't using the language of the Two Kingdoms, that uh, when he was developing his theology of common grace, and he was obviously a very important figure in bringing the doctrine of common grace to, to prominence in, in uh, Reformed theology, that he's basically working in the Reformed Two Kingdoms uh, tradition. And I, I, I think that's, that's important to, uh, to, to recognize as we try to understand the way Reformed theology has developed. Because these two categories, uh, natural law and two kingdoms, fell out of use in the 20th century— it has seemed to some people to be a, a sort of novelty, and some people have even described it as if it were some sort of radical idea. But you're saying, no, there's nothing radical about natural law and two kingdoms. In fact, these are uh, very traditional ideas. Uh, they are. And, you know, you know after, after doing my uh, research and putting this book together, I, I think I can say that with, with 100% full confidence, that this, uh, these are— these are very standard uh, doctrines, and they're not just—I think one thing that's really important to recognize is that they're not standalone doctrines, as if these are just sort of floating out there and people affirm them, and then people could just stop affirming them and nothing changes in the rest of Reformed theology. I mean, it's, that, that, that's really not true in that the Two Kingdoms doctrine was built upon a, uh, a Christology. It's built upon the, the distinction between Christ as the mediator of creation and Christ as the mediator of, 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 of redemption. All sorts of of important ecclesiological and and uh, e- ecclesiastical practices were built upon the two kingdoms. I, mm-hmm. I I argue in the book. I mean, it's I don't think you can uh, you can properly understand the regulative principle of worship mm-hmm. if you don't understand the two kingdoms doctrine because those two things were intimately related. I don't think you can understand the reformed idea of the. Uh, ministerial character of uh, the Church without an understanding of the Two Kingdoms doctrine. I mean, that, that in the 16th, 17th uh, century, the, the, these ideas were very related. I don't think you can understand the Reformed doctrine of the Sabbath 
without understanding how they were thinking about natural law. If you, you, you go back and, and you read important works on, on the Sabbath uh, in the 16th, 17th century, natural law is all over mm. lots of them. And, and so I would make the argument that, that these are actually part of our broader system of doctrine. That, that's not to say that they have the same centrality that the Trinity or justification has, but they're still part of our, of our larger uh, system of doctrine, and that we shouldn't think that we can just sort of pick those out of our system and that it won't have any larger ramifications. And in fact, I mean, I, I, I tend to think that uh, the, the uh, decline of things like the Sabbath and the regular principle of, of, of worship is not unrelated to the fact that uh, the two kingdoms and, and natural law ideas have not been well understood uh, in recent generations. We're talking with David Vendronen, and we're talking about his brand new book, Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, A Study in the Development of Reformed Social Thought. You're listening to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California. David, there are competing movements out there, if you will, intellectual movements and social movements within uh, the Reformed intellectual and ecclesiastical world. There are theonomists who are arguing for the abiding validity of the judicial law, the Mosaic judicial law and penalties, and that arguing that uh, the civil magistrate ought to put those into effect if it's uh, if the magistrate is really doing uh, his job. And then there is, a, I think, a class more generically of theocrats who want to see maybe not the judicial laws implemented, but they want to see uh, the first table of the Ten Commandments enforced by the magistrate. Uh, and then there are, I know, a group of Reformed pluralists who consciously advocate religious pluralism. Relative to those three options with which people may be already familiar, where would you place uh, what you're finding in the Reformed tradition uh, relative to those three contemporary movements? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to offer a few thoughts on uh, each of them. Uh, as far as uh, theonomy goes— it's it'd be very difficult for me to to try to, f- to to find anything in the reformed tradition that would really give any kind of historical backing for that uh i mean it, it it's not just in the reformed uh, tradition i mean if you go back to aquinas you go back you go to luther you go to calvin you go to the westminster standards uh, you go to all sorts of uh, people uh, in in Britain or on the continent uh, it, that it's it's just very clear that Reformed people did not think that the Old Testament judicial law should be uh, put in, into place uh, for contemporary civil law, and and in doing that they were following. I mean, they were they were not differing from the Lutherans. They were not differing from Aquinas or or. Medieval Catholicism, I think they can say that this is a broad Catholic uh, a view, is that there may be some things in the Old Testament civil law which would be good laws today, uh, but it, it is, it is, it's not right. In fact, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a misunderstanding of the era of redemptive history in which we live to say that the Mosaic judicial laws, because they are Mosaic judicial laws, ought to be enforced uh, uh, today as such. So you're saying, really, that theonomy, the abiding validity of the, the judicial law in exhaustive detail, that, historically, is not the traditional position. That, in fact, you're saying, historically, is a novelty. Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, it is. Because there are people who assume, and I get communications like this on a regular basis, that we used to be theonomists, yeah. and then somehow we fell away from being theonomists. And so if we go back to 
you know, if we pick up theonomy again, we're really going back to the tradition. But you're saying that's not historically, that's not true at all. No, it's not true. And, uh, you know, people, I, I, I offer lots and lots of evidence in the book for that conclusion, and people obviously can evaluated for themselves. Okay. So another reason to get this book, then, if you're interested in theonomy, if you're thinking about it, worried about it, wondering, you know, whether, well, maybe this is the way we should go, then uh, you you want to get a copy yeah. of this book. It's not an independent topic of the book, but it comes up uh, often. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a second school, theocracy, yeah. not theonomy per se, but asking the magistrate to enforce the first table. Now, that, that would seem to be a little more difficult, perhaps. Well, I, I mean, I, I think actually you could go back and, and you find very strong historical precedent for that uh, in the Reformed tradition. And I, you know, I don't try to, you know, to try to hide that evidence either. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. Certainly in the 16th and 17th uh, centuries, it's pretty standard for Reformed theologians, even those who are arguing very strongly for natural law for the two kingdoms, to— um, uh, to argue that the magistrate ought to be have have some kind of role. I mean, they don't all agree with each other exactly what that role is, but that the magistrate needs to have some sort of role in um, punishing blasphemy, punishing heresy, uh, protecting the true church, um, suppressing others, you know, uh, Jews or uh, Roman Catholics, um, perhaps calling synods of the church. So there's actually uh, there there is uh, a, a lot of historical precedent for that. Now, um, I actually spend uh, a, a fair bit of space in uh, several chapters trying to evaluate those views uh, alongside of their convictions about natural law and and the two kingdoms. And I think it's it's uh, I think a lot of people assume well if you hold the two kingdoms view well then it just automatically means you just rule that out. And and I would say that uh, I, I don't think it's quite that simple. Um, that uh, I, th- I think these people were very thoughtful about what they were doing. You have to understand them in context, mm-hmm. and, and there, are, there are all sorts of things that, that, that I, I think need to be uh, uh, evaluated. I, I ultimately think that there are some inconsistencies in taking that kind of theo- broader theocratic view if one holds a two-kingdoms uh, position as the Reformed themselves set it out. But it's, uh, it's, it's a complicated issue, and it's one that's, I, I, I think, a very legitimate topic for us to discuss theologically, because I, it, 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 it does have that strong uh, uh, historical foundation in, in, in the uh, Reformed tradition. Now, as far as the kind of this, this tradition of pluralism goes, um, I think you find that uh, uh, with the, uh, uh, some of the folks that I, I look at in my book. Uh, I look at the um, uh, 18th century Presbyterians in uh, America, especially in Virginia. Uh, I look at some of the folks like um, Hodge and Thornwell and Stuart Robinson, who were who were wrestling with some of these issues in the uh, 19th century, uh, and Abraham Kuyper. And uh, I think all of these people were instrumental in their own ways in in um, giving shape to a Reformed Two Kingdoms doctrine that is actually put in the context of a broader religious liberty in which um, the magistrate is not setting out to enforce true orthodoxy or punishing everyone who's a deviant from what's accepted as uh, uh, pure Christian doctrine. And um, uh, my own sympathies would certainly be with that that line of thought. This is interesting because the original two kingdoms proponents were theocrats, and yet you're arguing for a kind of pluralism. 
how can you say, well, you're holding the traditional two kingdoms view, but you're doing so as a pluralist? How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, well, there were certainly there there have been a number of reformed two kingdoms theologians in our history who were not theocrats, and you know some of the people that I, I mentioned. I mean, certainly the you know the, a long tradition of American Presbyterianism, uh, as well as someone like Abraham Kuyper. And so, for one thing, my my uh, writing this book and trying to understand how earlier generations of Reformed theologians uh, looked at natural law in the two kingdoms. Doesn't I mean that that doesn't mean that they were right about everything, mm. um, and so I mean I, I I put this this book out there, and it's certainly for people to do with as they will. I mean I I, I think the historical evidence is there that these are an, an intimate part of our tradition. Now perhaps we we're, we're going to judge that these are not the most helpful things, or we need to revise them or tweak them in certain ways, and I think those are those are very valid uh, discussions to have. Though we should be mindful of of what we're doing uh, if 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 we want to. Uh, uh, to go that route. I mean, I, I personally think that, that there are helpful ways in which we can develop these things. And for, for me personally, I think seeing the natural law and two kingdoms doctrines, the historic reformed natural law, two kingdoms doctrines, uh, grounded more specifically, more explicitly in uh, reformed biblical covenant theology can be a really, really helpful thing. And I think we have the resources now to be uh, uh, to be doing that. Sort of to, to get back to your question, it's really important to remember that when the 16th and 17th century Reformed theologians were defending the two kingdoms and also uh, defending the, the civil enforcement against blasphemy and heresy and Jews and Roman Catholics and all that, uh, that, that, that they were working very much in the Christendom context in which it, you know, it's, it's very much assumed that the magistrate is going to have its hand in religious affairs and uh, assumed by a whole lot of people that there really could only be one church that's really recognized as the true church that's civilly, politically uh, recognized uh, as such. And uh, in, in the broader history of the world of Western civilization, the idea of religious liberty is a fairly new idea. And I think personally that uh, it's it's a defensible idea. I, I think it is... It is more compatible with um, with a biblical theology than is um, that kind of theocratic Christendom kind of uh, Christianity. But that's something on which you know there's been differences among Reformed theologians. It's something I think you know we can uh, we can disagree up and and uh, debate some of those things. Although I would hold my own views you know quite quite strongly on those. And when you defend or argue for uh, sort of pluralist point of view, you have some pretty good company, namely, for example, uh, Abraham Kuyper right. offered some very strong arguments in the early part of the 20th century in favor of pluralism, even going so far as to say, if I have to be theocratic to be reformed, then I'd rather not be reformed. Yeah, and I mean, uh, Kuyper was a leader in revising Article 36 of the Belgian Confession about about the uh, uh, state church. What's also Im- important to understand with, uh, with with Kuyper, and I think this is also true with you know say the American Presbyterians who were wrestling with with these issues, is that uh, they were living in a very different world, and it's a world that's obviously different from ours too. But our world is a lot more similar to their world than either of our worlds are to. The 16th and 17th century European Christendom ideas. That uh, the fact is, is that we are living in in a world in which 
we are a religious minority. We're, we're, we're a small religious minority. Uh, someone like Kuiper was wrestling with the fact that uh, Reformed Christians were not in the same position that, that they had been uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 before. And I do think it's very important that, um, that we don't too quickly assume that, given some theological categories that we have, like natural law, the two kingdoms, that they just automatically and without any thought translate into a particular political or legal philosophy, mm. is that they require application in particular social circumstances. And I think it's entirely plausible that that may look different in 16th century G- G- Geneva from the way it looks in the 19th century Netherlands, from the way it looks in early 21st century uh, America. And, uh, you know, you, you go back to Calvin, and and he says, you know, uh, civil laws and civil punishments are going get, to get applied in different ways at different times. The natural law is not going to look the same in its enforcement one place as in um, another place. And I think that's important perspective for us to take all the time. So we have to be a little cautious about saying or talking about the two kingdoms view of this or that as if it's always either going to be the same now or has always been the same. These are really just categories of analysis that might be applied differently in different times by different people. Yes, I think that's right. Well, that's it for this edition of Office Hours. We're thankful for another opportunity to talk to uh, David Vendrunen about uh, his latest book. And thanks to producer Robert Riccio, to Katie Wagonmaker in the bookstore, to Young Me for graphics, and to Adam Klaus for technical assistance. We'll be back next time for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online at wscal.edu slash officehours or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu slash officehours. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. For more information about this program or about West Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474, 888-480-8474, copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California, all rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.